Well, I look forward to hearing from David Johnson this morning. I will tell you when we were talking about asking him if he'd fill in, Drake suggested that we get a rather large timepiece and put it somewhere where he could see it. But uh, I, 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 had a, I had a little little more subtle approach in mind. You know, I saw a, a nice picture of Barney Fife and uh, Andy sitting there in the third state of anesthesia, and it says, you know, there's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> my, my, my idea was we just put that on the, the rear projector where only David could see it, you know. But, no, all, all that aside, we, we love David. We uh, are so thankful that he's willing to come and, and preach to us, and uh, we, and I'm, for me, I wouldn't care how long it lasts. I, I enjoy it, so uh, look forward to what you have to say, David. I have never felt so welcomed in my life. <laughs> my wife is laughing because, oh my, thank you for that. Um, I had the good fortune one time of being in a small church that had J. Vernon McGee show up, and uh, he preached. It's the church I came to faith in, my wife and I later would meet in, and uh, J. Vernon McGee came uh, and there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. Everybody was excited they were there, or he was coming. Chairs were in the aisles that normally weren't there. The place was packed. And uh, in the preamble to his sermon, there was a lot of talk. And finally, Jay Vernon was, is impatient, started approaching the pulpit. And he tells the senior pastor, uh, Jack, we need to move on. <laughs> and he takes off. And Jay Vernon McGee takes off his watch and sets it down. He said, you told me I had 45 minutes, but... Right now, you used up my time, so I'm going to get it back. And uh, if you start going comatose on me, I'll know what you're doing. That's my signal. There's been another moment or two in my life where I've been in churches and people were told to rattle their keys because you got a Cowboys game at 12 o'clock, Pastor. Make sure you get finished in time. And then the time when the Cowboys weren't so good, they, who cares? But um, maybe it's a little different. Is that what it is till 3:30? Settle in. We're going to be here a while. That is so good. I like that. Well, if there was ever a time um, to have this moment, it's now. Because I think if there's anything that we all struggle with in our Christian experience, is the sense of if Jesus Christ has saved me for his purposes... One of the great explorations of our life is, what is that? What is my purpose? And to the extent that we have an understanding of what our purpose is, um, it seems the further we go in certain aspects of church life, that people who are participating in the church and those who are apparent leaders in the church seem to have a smaller number, but what about the rest of us? What about all of us? And what role do we have in God's providential care and his calling of us to serve his body? What do we bring? Do I have to go to school? Do I need to go to Bible college or seminary to be trained to serve in the church? And for some, the answer is yes and ought to. But there's another element within the Christian church experience that is that moment when everyone has a part in the development of a healthy church experience where your gift is necessary 
and can be used to minister to others who have those gifts that we actually serve and we work with each other. Just exactly what is it that we can do and what can we offer to Jesus Christ and the church that would honor him? For, for the clearest example, I can remember sitting literally in the pew as a new believer and reading what was then the bulletin, uh, and you got this kind of empty bulletin on the inside, but on the backside was usually some statement or some level, and ironically, one Sunday, it was J. Vernon McGee, who I'd listened to with my grandparents on Through the Bible, and he had written something that had been recorded in this one particular thing about the next generation of leaders in the church. And I remember in my mind thinking, I want to be the answer to what J. Vernon McGee said. And it was God raising up in me a desire to ultimately go and study at the seminary so that I could study my Bible and learn to teach the Bible. But that was a narrow group of people. What about the rest of us? And one of the things that I think is so important is to recognize that God has called each of you Every single one of you to a role in the life of others in something called the church. And for where you are now at Terrell Bible Church, you have a place and you are important to the healthy growth spiritually of another person. Every single one of you. It's not rooted in Drake only or Barb, or the elders, or anybody else who's in leadership in the church. It's rooted in each of you. And I want to I talk about it this way because what I want to focus in on is to look at an example in the New Testament. Usually when I'm here, I enjoy the Old Testament because I stay away from the books that Drake is currently teaching. But in this case, I want to dive into what I consider to be one of the understudied men who is actually one of the most significant to all the other men we study. This man is never quoted, though we know he talked. This never, he never wrote a book, although the people he influenced did, and they've written most of the New Testament. And he disappears from the biblical pages of history in what appears to be an angry moment, and we never hear from him again, although he's referenced, but he disappears. And we're left with, are you ready for this? The remainder of his ministry found in other people. He goes away, but his legacy and his influence is what we know of the New Testament Bible and the early church. One man. What did one man do that would bear so much influence in the life of so many people that we don't know anything about the church without him? We don't know anything about what the church went through or how it's governed or what God was doing in its midst without this one character. I'm going to ask you to pause in just a moment, right now, and I want you to imagine someone in your life, in whatever stage of life you are, that you can look back to as the person that bore the influence in your life who 
turned your life around or transformed your life or opened up a vista that for the first time you saw a sense of your calling and purpose. I want you to think about a single person that was so instrumental that you can't be who you are with that person, without that person. I immediately can think of my grandparents, obviously my mom and dad at various places in my life, but in terms of showing me a sense of the future, somebody that knew who I was and said something about me to me that pulled me out of myself into the sense of future and destiny. Is there anybody in your life that way? My guess is the answer is yes. My grandmother one day when the music was playing at the end of a service had seen God doing something in my life and she leaned over and whispered to me, David, don't you think it's time you walk the aisle? Which was code words for give your life to Jesus. And I said, not yet. I would the next Sunday. So I can think of my grandmother as one of the most inspirational, influential people drawing me out of my sinfulness. And she had represented who God was since I was a child. But now is that pivotal moment when she inspired me to make a decision for Jesus Christ. And I wanted to do it. I just hesitated walking the aisle. But I would get over it the next week. Do you have somebody in mind? Maybe it was a teacher who believed in you in your early days, helped you get over a moment of struggle. Maybe it was a coach, someone who invested in you and believed in you and taught you and challenged you and frustrated you. But then all of a sudden, you did something you thought you could never do. And then you look back with fondness on the influence of that coach. He was 12 years old, but little Albert had done really well in school. But there was a a moment in the history of his country where 12-year-olds were either going to continue their studies or they were going to learn to take up a craft and learn a trade. And little Albert loved learning. And his teacher, Mr. Bernard, decided that he needed to go to Albert's mother and grandmother and beg that they let him continue his studies. Albert's mother and grandmother were widows. World War I had killed their husband and father. So these two women had no men in their life, and they needed Albert to go work for the family. And Mr. Bernard made his trip to Albert's mother's home where the grandmother lived and pleaded that he would be able to continue his studies. Albert later wrote in his autobiography found in his car that killed him in a car wreck. And he had handwritten his autobiography. It wasn't even typed. And he's reflecting upon his life 40 years later about Mr. Bernard's influence. And Albert wrote, This man used all the weight of his life to change the destiny of the child in his keep And he indeed did it. How this one man, Albert, could remember this man, Mr. Bernard, when Albert was only 12 years old, and how Mr. Bernard had done everything he could to help this 12-year-old that would set his life on course to become a Nobel Prize-winning laureate, writer, 
Albert Camus. Well, how about you? Who's that person? Who's your Mr. Bernard or maybe Mrs. Bernard? I want to argue, although that sounds bad, I want to position, I want to propose, I want to offer that the man I'm talking about in the New Testament is not Mr. Bernard, but a man named Joseph. And I'd like you to look in Acts chapter 4. So why don't we turn there, Acts chapter 4, to be introduced to what I consider to be the most significant character in the early days, early days and stages of the church. And I'm going to make a bold statement. Drake can fix me later. But I'm going to argue that this one man, and we're going to take some snapshots of his life today, is somebody we can all be. All of us can do what this man did. All of us. We see him first mentioned at the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, the last two verses, verse 38 and 39. I'm sorry, 36 and 37 read this way. And Joseph, that's his name, named after one of the heroes of the Jewish faith. He was a Levite of Cyprian birth. So he's from the island of Cyprus, who was also called Barnabas. That's our man, Barnabas. By the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. And who owned a track of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Early on in the church, if you believed in Jesus, you lost everything you had. You were Jewish. And if you believed in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, you went against all of the leadership in Israel. You can read the Gospels and see this story. Your family disowned you. They literally would tear their clothing at the passing of their child. And the opposition to Jesus, which killed him, and the opposition to the early church, which would scatter them, is beginning to be seen in the economic deprivation that the early church would experience. They lost everything. So the, the first ministry of the church was to feed the hungry Christians. Because when you believed in Jesus, you were homeless. And what we see in this early stage as the church is growing, adding thousands to its number, most of the time they met in Solomon's colonnade there in Jerusalem just outside the temple. That was the early place of meeting for the church. But they needed things as fundamentally basic as food. And one man, we don't know his conversion story, we just see him show up on the pages of Acts 4, is this Cypriot Christian. He's a Levite. By the way, according to the Old Testament, Levites were not allowed to own property, for somehow Barnabas owned property. And one exception to that rule was you could own a burial plot. It's possible that in this particular case, in Jerusalem, where Barnabas lived, he may have sold that burial plot and was providing all of the resources and all of the receipts of that money to the church by walking it in and putting it in submission to the apostles. That's why they said his, their feet. 
This also sets up in contrast what's going to happen next with Ananias and Sapphira who also sell a piece of property, but they hold back the full amount. They wanted to look like Barnabas. He was such a person of example that they wanted the same reputation, but they didn't have the same heart or character. They would die for their sinfulness. But in this particular case, what we learn about Barnabas is the apostles thought so much of his generosity. That's the first thing I want us to know is they thought so much of his generosity and what it meant to them, they drew encouragement from his example. And they changed his name to Barnabas. Joseph was well known. There were many of those. There was one Barnabas. If I could take away one of the first principles of this example, and it's extremely obvious, but let's don't miss it. One of the greatest things about people in a a true church environment where you're ministering and being ministered to, the expression of generosity marks the church. You give. So often it's thought of as your money, but it's more than that. It's surely that, but it's more than that. Your time, your willingness to serve, the willingness to be a part of a community of believers, to do what's necessary. All the little things that a church needs. 99% of everything done in church is voluntary. And that's what makes a church great. And that's what Barnabas is. is a generous man. He takes his assets and converts them into service of the saints. I work in the nonprofit sector, have for a number of years. And one of the things that amazes me about the wealth that I see with believers is how deeply committed people who are truly wealthy are to give. I was in the office of one of the largest foundations, Christian foundations in the country for the last 160 years. This foundation has changed the church and Christian ministries around the world. And sitting in the middle with the great-grandson of the founder of the foundation, he looked at me and said, David, why are you asking people to give to your ministry? And I started to explain mission and purpose and all the sort of things that were the answers, and true. And he finally looked at me in his stately southern style, and he says, David, the one reason you're asking people to give is so they can receive the blessing from God who blesses the cheerful giver. Remind them of the gift that comes from giving, not that they're tithing or not that you're meeting their needs as a ministry. They would receive a blessing from being generous. What a perspective change. Amazing, isn't it? To think about if God truly loves a cheerful giver, there's a reception of God's love that comes to the person who gives generously and cheerfully. Barnabas is blessed by God. And the apostles change his name. That's the first scene. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. All right, We're going to move uncharacteristically fast for David. Chapter 9. This one's one of the turning points in all of the New Testament. The early church is founded by the apostles who, in Peter's sermon in chapter 2, Peter is the central mouthpiece of what God is doing as the center of the message of the gospel of Jesus and then his preaching all the way up until chapter 10 with the vision of Cornelius when it begins to be This is going to now reach out to the Gentiles. But there's this moment of prelude in Acts 9 
where we're introduced to a man who hates the church, and he's a ravenous, murderous, intended Pharisee who is joyful at the death of Stephen after a sermon in Acts chapter 7 and 8. And we're introduced to Saul, the angry Pharisee who's looking to destroy the church, but in his desire to take the letters of authority from Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership to find and stomp out the church in Damascus, he's struck down by a blinding light, and all of history has changed. Though our intentions may be evil, God will turn things at his pleasure to turn things around, and he will use this angry murderer of believers. So we're introduced to this dramatic scene change in chapter 9, and all of a sudden, the man who was spewing out threats is converted. Well, look at me, excuse me, look with me, don't look at me, but look with me at chapter 9, verse 20. And immediately he, this is Paul after his conversion, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. What a change in his messaging. Earlier, he had been accusing the early church of blasphemy, calling a man God. And now he is professing this man is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? The idea of bringing them bound was to arrest them and get them to be tried and executed. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Fascinating apologist he became, proving that he was the Christ. You know what he was doing. He was sizing up the Old Testament of which he was a professor as a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees, one of the greatest teachers. He is showing them their book, and as an authority in the law, this man now is seeing the fullness of the promises of the Old Testament having been actualized and experienced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now Paul, excuse me, Saul, the professor, is convincing them in Damascus of its truth. So what he had been opposed to, he is now in full endorsement. I think one of the greatest examples of the most compelling message that any of us could ever have is when we've opposed something in our past and now we promote in our, in our present. Someone who has given their life to something and they've changed and now they're giving their life to the opposite who've been redeemed and they do it for good is the most compelling message. Now there's a lot who do it for evil, but I'm talking about who do it for good. So Paul's own testimony from the word of God of the Old Testament and his ability to demonstrate the fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus Christ would be the anticipation of what he would write in the New Testament that we've read to learn what Paul had learned in his own experience. He used his full authority as a Pharisee to destroy the church. Then he used his full authority as a converted man to promote the church, and he used his full authority as a writer to give us the documents that demonstrate the truth of our theology, the truth in the statements we say, Jesus is our Savior. And now we recognize the fullness happens right here in these full, full, a few verses. 
It's an amazing transition to see the change. But he has a problem. The apostle Paul, at this moment is Saul, has a problem. And it's a problem that is certain. When you've been a murderer of Christians, the Christians who've lost their friends, maybe even their family, are going to have a hard time welcoming you into the room. If you've lost a family member to someone, you may have a hard time accepting the person who took their life. If you've been mistreated by someone and they've gone through a change, you might have a hard time accepting them if that change is real because of your own personal experience. I grew up with a lot of close friends in my little high school. I was not a believer. I mistreated some of them, some of them I was a bad influence on. When I became a Christian and I felt conviction for who I had been, I literally went back to some of those people and asked them to forgive me. And some of them had a hard time. So imagine, if you will, that that's where Saul is. The man who is proving who Jesus Christ was as the Son of God cannot get past the opposition in the room to his own testimony. What, a, what an amazing thing to consider. He's turned his back on his Jewish contemporaries, but the people he's seeking to join will not accept him. He's in no man's land. His past is over and his future is uncertain. He is a man with two sets of enemies and nowhere to go. Well, that's not quite true. But at this moment, that's where we are. So, where was I? Verse 22, kept increasing in strength and confounding. Uh, now, 23. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him into a large basket. This champion of Hebrew theology, this, this man of the future for the church, is being let down in the secrecy of a basket. Can you imagine how humbling it must have been to be this proud man being stuck in a basket like baby Moses and being let down through a hole in the wall by your new buds? Well, they recognized his value, and he recognized the importance of being alive. And when he came to Jerusalem, or had come from Jerusalem, remember, this is Damascus. Now he's going to go home to Jerusalem from where he had left with the articles of destruction. He's coming home in a totally different mood. He was trying to associate with the disciples. Now, remember, there had been the disciples, these early believers in Jerusalem. So off he goes to kill them. He comes back. And now he wants to be part of them. Back to the tension I was describing earlier. Welcome home, but we don't want you. And they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Next verse. The turning point in church history. What I would consider to be the turning point, which would become the expansive growth of the church. As we saw this brief moment in chapter 4 where Barnabas takes what 
whatever property that he had, sells it and gives it to the apostles to do as they please and as they needed. This man now is also generous with his own reputation. And he steps into the life of this scandalous man with this new conversion and this terrible reputation. And he steps straight into the room. And he says, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas tells the room of Paul's testimony. Has someone ever defended you? In your testimony, has someone ever stepped alongside of you, next to you, almost as your representative under the court, your defense attorney, your champion? That's what Barnabas is. That person in your life was your Barnabas. He tells the story. Now, here's the risk that Barnabas is taking. He has to believe what Saul is saying is true. And number two, he does not care whatsoever about what other people think of him when he takes the risk on behalf of this this man. One of the great examples of someone who serves Jesus Christ in the church is a willingness to be forgiving of some of the worst offense. And number two, when you're willing to forgive... As hard as that can be, and it is the standard for what Jesus Christ did for us and he says to us, we do for others, is to lose your reputation among those you might have earlier cultivated favor. Are you willing to lose your reputation to do the thing that God would do? Forgive someone? What typically happens if we're offended, we seek counsel from others equally offended. And in order to maintain that counsel, no one breaks ranks. Well, I'm going to forgive the person. But you, do you recognize what he did to me? Now you're offending me by forgiving the person that hurt me. It's a secondary offense. Barnabas loses any concern, or he never had it, of his reputation. He forgives Paul, welcomes Paul, and he does so at the expense of his own reputation. So verse 28, and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. Now, he was about to die in Damascus, and now and Ananias was his champion, and now in Jerusalem, Barnabas is his champion, but they were still facing threats because they were still, and the church was under the threat of death, and now one of their own has turned on them. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, took him down to the coast, and they sent him away to his homeland, Tarshish. They put Paul on a boat and said, go home. But notice what's happening at the church. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit continued to increase. It's an amazing transformation. Who's at the center? 
Barnabas. Barnabas and his generosity has provided for the needs of the church. And Barnabas and his generous spirit on behalf of a person has just secured a welcome of the most controversial person in the early history of the church. And then when it got a little uptight, he sends him off to go home for a bit. And God has blessed the church with its peace and its increase. But things are about to heat up. Now, in the meantime, I've been focusing on Barnabas. What most people do, and rightly so, is if you look at the study of the book of Acts, there are three major parts of the book of Acts. The first is its start, the second is its scatter, and the third is its spread. The first and its start is really good up until the point they start killing you. And the persecution begins with Paul, or Saul, in the sermon of Stephen, and it finally climaxes with the death of James, the first apostle to die in chapter 12. And because of the initial persecution, the church is, is spreading, and because of the death of James, it's, going, it's scattered in the first, it's spreading in the second, because what will happen in chapter 13 is the launch of the first missionary journey. Almost everything is in Jerusalem, but now it's going to grow. And then it's going to come back to Jerusalem. Then it's going to go out again. And then it starts to move, ultimately ending in Rome. In the 28 chapters, that's where the book ends. There's a second part to way to see the book of Acts. And the first is Peter, in his initial ministry from chapters 1 through 10, he's preaching the first sermon in chapter 2. He's dealing with the first Gentile in chapter 10. And then the book pivots. And the book pivots when the first church that was heavy with the the Gentile believers, not just Jews, which is Jerusalem, but the Gentile believers is when the church moves to Antioch. Antioch at the time is the third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria. Rome and Italy, Alexandria, and Egypt. Antioch is up in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. It's not on the ocean, but it's close enough to become a point of departure rather than Jerusalem up in the mountains. So the early church is in Acts chapter 11, When Jewish people are there, but also Gentile believers start coming to faith. Can we turn to chapter 11? Third scene. All right. Oh, by the way, the second portion of the book is Paul. And it really starts usually from chapter 12, the end, all the way through to the end of the book. So it's Peter, then Paul. But what I'm arguing although not argumentatively. What I'm positioning and I'm proposing is the man that makes all this happen is Barnabas because he's in every one of these transitional scenes and he is helping it, we would call it activating these moments. He's bringing them into reality. Scene three. All right, so let me see where we are. Verse 19, okay? So when those were scattered because of the persecution, which I've already mentioned, arose in connection with Stephen, chapter 8, made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. It always began with the Jews first, but this one jumps the fence. But there were also some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Oh, the name Cyrene ring a bell? Not Siren, but Cyrene. Remember the man who... When the Roman soldiers are taking Jesus to the cross, there's a man they pulled out of the crowd. Ah, here you whisper, Simon of Cyrene. 
Tradition has it that Simon, who in that experience of having to carry the cross of Christ for a while, goes home to Cyrene from his own experience, would have been the first missionary to Cyrene. This is an amazing thing to consider. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross for Christ at one stage of his journey down the the Via Della Rosa. On the way to his crucifixion, and then Jesus would get on the cross for Simon of Cyrene. And Simon took that message home and told people in Cyrene, and we see these people show up in the New Testament. So I take this as an echo of the work of Jesus Christ and Simon of Cyrene, that there were people from that country, North Africa, who came to be a part of this Antiochian church, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Now remember, Antioch's down by the Mediterranean Sea. Back up in the mountains is where the apostles are in Jerusalem. And they sent who? Barnabas. The apostles knew right out of the gate, he's our man. Barnabas, go check it out. Barnabas had earned the trust for his generosity, his forgiving spirit, his risk-taking, his reputation. And now as a trusted man of the apostles, Barnabas, will you go check out the reports of what's happened in Antioch? And as an ambassador of the church, he heads down the hills of the mountains of Jerusalem to the coast. Verse 23, then when he had come and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to, guess what? Encourage them. It's amazing, isn't it? This Joseph, this son of encouragement, does for these new believers the same thing he had done for the new Jewish believers. Can I just say one of the most important things we could ever do with anyone is what Barnabas did? Encourage them. I coached a lot of football. I coached a lot of players. I've taught a lot of people. I usually wanted to give them data. I wanted to show them how to take a step a certain way or how to position their arm a certain way and how to defend and whatever football players do that coaches do. But maybe the single most important thing I ever did was encourage them. Maybe I don't need some smart guy telling me facts. Maybe I just need somebody to tell me I can learn. There's that moment where you've got to be tough. You've got to do the hard, heavy lifting. But sometimes you just, especially with certain people who are sensitive to things that would be displeasing to someone else, if you're a people person, you know what I'm talking about. You don't want to disappoint anyone. But when you carry the, the burden of the weight of whatever it is someone expects from you, and we can really do this well in the church, put a spiritual burden on people that they can't carry, sometimes we just need to say, and it's not artificial, it's real. You can do it. Don't give up. Try again. 
You only fail when you quit. Don't quit. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be at a group of, uh, it's a high school reunion. And they've asked um, a group of us to come back because a few years ago, actually we call, call them decades when you get too many of them. A few decades ago, I was a coaching, I was a co- on the coaching staff of a very successful football team. And we won three state championships in a row, appeared in four. I still remember the one we lost by a point. I still remember it. I still wish I'd call a different place. But that's what it is. And all of these men who were boys then, over the years, have married and had children, lost their parents, in some cases lost their friends, in some cases lost their children. They all come back together because they were so encouraged by those days. One of the hardest things that dads fail to do is encourage their children. We see this in Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Why are dads so blamed tough? Because we're dads. And we're fallen dads. We're fallen men. It's the moms who have to come in and clean up the mess that dad made. No, well, this is what your father meant. And then the mom wrestles with that private moment when she goes to her husband and says, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. So dads, I sympathize with you as one. The power of a father to encourage his children is untold. Or their grandchildren. My grandparents encouraged me. My father encouraged me in his own way. In this particular case, this man Barnabas began by encouraging these new believers what power there was in his wisdom to know what to say to these new believers about what God was doing in the life of the church. It's an amazing moment. Let me just make it really clear, as I said at the outset. You do not need to go to Bible school or seminary to get a master's in encouragement so that you're authorized and it's on your resume, I've got a master's in encouragement. You know what you can do to do that? Do it right where you are. Every single one of us in this room can do that. The wonderful thing about studying the life of Barnabas is we get to study his life and see what he did. We don't know what he said to encourage them. And you know what that really means? It means we don't have a script. We're not quoting Barnabas. Well, like Barnabas said, or like Paul said, or like Peter, I've got evidence of what they said. Well, this is what Jesus said. I have no idea what Barnabas said to encourage them. I do know this. He did it. And I would offer you the silence of the scripture is often the the place where your personality and the circumstances of the life in which you're living open up your script. You do it in your way. You say it the way you know is best. I just know this. It's transformational. Why is it transformational? Because the church at Antioch will be the launch place for all the missionary journeys of Paul. 
And this church is unique because it's the first time ever the followers of Jesus are called Christians, little Christ ones. They became set aside as followers of Jesus. So profound was the change that came about in the believers there. Well, let me continue then. Luke writes it this way. Luke wrote Acts from my reading. Verse 24, he was a good man. That speaks to his character. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That speaks to the presence of God in his life, that it wasn't just him doing it, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And finally, he was a man of faith. You know what that means? He was willing to take a risk. He was bold. We're actually seeing him living out. And then you know what he did? We don't see it here. We don't read his mind. We just know what he did. Verse 25, he left for Tarshish to look for Saul. After all these years, I think Barnabas went from Jerusalem per the apostles. He gets to Antioch. He seizes what the needs are, and he recognizes, you know what? This church needs more than just an encourager. This church needs what? A man who can teach God's truth. One of the great things about the Christian church, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are the list of the gifts of the body of Christ. And Paul's admonition that the value of one gift is not higher than any other gift or lower than any, all of them are important to the function of the body. As a new believer, I remember being asked the question, David, what is your gift? I said, what are you talking about? I have no idea. What do you, I mean, I was new to the faith. I didn't know my Bible. I didn't know church. So what's your spiritual gift? I said, what are you talking about? I remember the person asking me that. I was so confused. And this person finally said, well, you should read Romans chapter 12 and Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I go home and I read it in the King James, large text, because my grandparents bought it for me. Lester Summerall Bible, because they'd given a gift to the Evangelistic Association Ministry, still have it. And I remember opening up to 12 and of those two, two books. I read the list. None of those are my gift. I read the next list. None of those are my gift. So I came back to my friend. I said, I don't have a gift. And the person says, everyone has a gift. I said, honoriness is not on the list. <laughs> and I meant it. I mean, what do I have to offer to the body of Christ? I got no gifts. You know, bring your gifts. Well, this isn't going to take long. I got nothing to carry. I had nothing to offer the body of Christ. Well, what I learned is the first thing you do is you need to know that whatever attracts you to Jesus... Whatever you find beautiful in him, the one who embodies all the gifts, is probably a clue to the giftedness that you have to serve. When it says, like Jesus, there's something about him that attracts you. Maybe it's his mercy for the sinner and the broken. You have the gift of mercy. Maybe it's the way he organized the disciples that became the apostles and he sent them out two by two with a message, don't take anything with you except your cloak. And if they reject you, dust off the feet and move on. Maybe yours is the gift of administration. Maybe if you are interested in how he dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the governing authorities and you see how he catches them in their own 
malintent. Maybe you have the gift of teaching. Or maybe as he was on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, proclaiming out, describing what the real meaning of the law was. You've heard said, but I say to you, blessed are. And he's making these deep pronouncements. Maybe yours is the gift of prophecy, which means to proclaim what God has said that applies to the person in the audience. What attracts you to Jesus is a clue to what your spiritual gift is. You ought to do like Jesus then and serve the body. Barnabas, in my judgment, knew he wasn't a teacher. And the church needs truth to be healthy. That's why Terrell Bible Church has been committed to the word of God since its founding. Because you need the truth of God. But you need all the gifts. So, verse 26, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The third thing I note here about Barnabas, the first is generosity, the second his risk, his forgiving spirit. The third I note, and I encourage you in the same way, is find the, the person who has the gifts that the church needs. First, bring your gift, and then be wise enough to bring in the, 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 the gifts you need and be humble enough not to try to do it yourself. You with me on this one? One of the greatest dangers, and we see it in Paul's writing about the church, is pride. And the reason he cautions those of us with gifts to not think less or more than we should about our gifts or others is just an element of pride. Certain gifts are more important than the others. It's not true. It's not true. It is for an unhealthy church, but not for a healthy one. That feels too lecturish. I'll stop right there. So it continues, though, there's one more thing that's going to happen, and this is going to be an echo of the previous moment in chapter 4. Look at verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there was certainly to be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. It gives us a historical context for what was going on in Rome. So you can see this date. Verse 29, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. Back in chapter 4, they were hungry because they had rejected their Jewish tradition and believed in Jesus, and they were outcast from the church. This famine is going to make life worse. So guess who is in Antioch at the time of the incipient famine? Is Barnabas, the man who helped alleviate the economic means and, and the desperate moments for the new believers, is now by God's grace planted in Antioch. So when the message comes, in Antioch he can gather up the means to send a gift back to Jerusalem home church. Can I say this as an aside? If you have been successful in the small things and been faithful, what will God do? He will use you again for greater things. What you're seeing in Barnabas in chapter 4, which is but two verses, is now another moment of desperation in the home church in Jerusalem. And guess who's right in the right place at the right time by God's providential grace is Barnabas, doing the same thing Barnabas has done before. I love this. This is an amazing part of God's grace in our life. 
Have you ever been successful in any place in service to the church? Keep doing it. Everywhere you go, do that. Take your, your gift, your, your ability, and serve and do it again. Let this be wherever you are is who you are and what you do is to help others. That's Barnabas. Well, they sent the contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, and they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So after a year of teaching together, now they're on a humanitarian relief mission trip back home. So they go back to Jerusalem. By the way, have you noticed who's mentioned every time the two of these men are together, who's mentioned first? Always Barnabas. Barnabas is the recognized leader of these two men. How are we doing? Everybody doing all right? Okay, I don't have my watch on, but I am cognizant of the time. So let's do this. Let's go to the end of chapter 12, scene 4. There's only five, so hang on. All right, we're good. So scene 4, chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. I'm going to skip over the unfortunate... um, Martyrdom of James and the death of the man who killed him, Herod. It's a wicked story, worth your time, but given our circumstance, I'll move on. Verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. By the way, it always does that in the face of, of persecution. Whatever, whenever man is opposed to God, God will bless his people. He takes it personal when his saints suffer. That's what he did with Paul, and it's what he did with Herod. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, what has happened? They've gone home to Jerusalem. Some events took place, and now it's time for them to go back to Antioch. But a a gentleman has joined them. I'll skip to the, some of the details, not because it doesn't matter, but for the sake of time, we will learn from Colossians chapter 4 that Mark, this man also called John, is Barnabas' cousin. Earlier translation had referred to him as his nephew, but the stronger sentiment seems to be that they're family for certain, cousin most likely. So now he's got a family member joining the group. And they head off on the first missionary journey in the book of Acts. Now, what what I'm saying here is that I have, for most of my studies, considered Paul to be the center of the missionary journeys. Chapters 13, 14, chapter 16, and all the way through until you get to his trip, which is considered the fourth and last missionary journey to Rome. But in this particular moment, I have to back up and say, I kind of missed the details. And I'm usually pretty tight on the detail. But in this case, watch what happens in chapter 13, the first missionary journey. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Mentioned first of five is Barnabas. Then there's Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Saul's mentioned last of the five. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The word sent literally is where we get the word apostle from. You can look in chapter 14, 14 and see that in describing the apostles, Barnabas is actually mentioned. Now, he's not an apostle as were the 12 and Paul, but he is an apostle of the church by which he was sent by the church to minister. So he is sent not of Jesus, but he is sent of the church, as I understand it. So they sent him away, and then they were sent by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and they go through this crazy moments of going through the history. They go to Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. They minister in Cyprus, then they eventually land in Asia Minor. And while in Asia Minor, they start going up these treacherous mountains. John Mark, the young guy, bolts and goes home. He leaves. It's a major issue. Only it's not a major issue when it happens. It's just a footnote. John Mark returned home. Goes back to Jerusalem. So as it turns out, in this particular moment, Saul is not the leader. Barnabas is the leader until they start preaching. And the moment they land in the first few cities, it's Paul who steps forward. And he's the one who begins to preach and defend, as we've seen earlier, proving from the law that Jesus was the Son of God. And he continues that all the way through chapter 13. And when you get into this idea that now I'm going to demonstrate this, for example, look in verse 42 of chapter 13 by way of illustration. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that they might be spoken to them next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. See how the names have changed? It moved from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas because he's become the chief spokesman. He's the preacher and Barnabas the encourager who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saved the, saw the crowd, excuse me, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming, similar to what Paul had done earlier. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It is necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. A major transition now in Paul's ministry from the Jews first, now to the Greeks or the Gentiles, it happens here. And he will primarily focus on all Gentile cities for the rest of his ministry. And thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard that they were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews aroused some women of prominence and leading men in the city. They instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And they shook off the dust from their feet and they moved on. So how are we doing? All good? The scene here, and there's another story I'll skip for the sake of time because there's one more thing that needs to happen is that at one particular moment, in one particular city, Barnabas and Paul are so... It's the only time we ever get a sense in the New Testament telling of what the crowd thought of their appearance. This is a fascinating kind of human interest story. Barnabas and Paul are preaching, and the people of the city who... There was a temple of Zeus in the city. And they look up and they see Barnabas, and they call him Zeus. And they see Paul, because of his preaching, they call his, his name is Hermes, the messenger of the gods. 
we get the word hermeneutics from the god of Hermes to be hermeneutical. That's how you explain or teach the scripture. Well, in this particular case, what we're hearing is that what the crowd thought of the way these two men looked. And what they are telling us in the reading of the book of Acts is the crowd looked upon Barnabas and saw him evidently to be this man of stature and presentation that he was godlike, the father of the gods. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say, but that's what they said. So there was something about his appearance that was powerful. And on the other hand, they look over at Paul, who's never recognized to be a great stately character, and they call him Hermes. They focused on Barnabas' appearance and Paul's words. And they come out to offer sacrifices, and both men go, stop. Don't do this. We're but men. And then they start describing in the world of the idolaters who the real God was. The God who created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains. And he has blessed you with rain. He's blessed you with crops. We say our daily blessing because of those things. So they said, don't worship us. But then there's another major crisis that occurred because so many Gentiles and so many unbelievers of the Jewish faith are coming in. They're not circumcised. They have a huge council. It's a major issue. And we have Acts 15. I'm going to skip this because it's so often covered, and rightly so. But because there's a theological controversy, the church in Antioch once again sends Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem to meet with the elders to reach the conclusion, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? The conclusion of the council was no. The only requirement to become a follower of Jesus Christ is faith. Not a circumcision, not a baptism, nothing. Just faith alone. And that's our theology. And the apostles determined in the first church council that very thing. And when they reached the conclusion, they wrote a letter explaining it. And they gave that letter to Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas and Paul carry that letter back to Antioch. And they declare that you don't have to undergo circumcision. Removing the barrier to the Gentile entry into the church. Very significant. And then they're sitting around. Let's go to the end of chapter 15. Last snapshot. Okay? So they've reached this letter. They go back to Antioch. So now at the end of chapter 15, verse 36, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, the first was evangelism. Now, the question is discipleship and church leadership and health. This is going to be not the evangelist tour, but the pastoral tour. Let's go back and see how the churches are doing. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, his cousin, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting. In other words, they'd had this conversation more than once. They kept having this conversation. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. Paul took John Mark's decision to go home back in chapter 13 personal. Someone had abandoned the work. So, when you get to 39, these two great men, Barnabas and Paul, are done. Can you imagine what that must have been like when Barnabas has 
risk his own reputation with the room to welcome this former murderer into the fellowship of the saints? What a champion he was of those who had a bad reputation. And now the man who once was rejected by the church is rejecting Barnabas' cousin. What do you do with that? Where's the forgiving spirit that Paul had experienced in his own life when it came to someone who had, according to Paul and Luke writing, had not gone with them to the work? It appears that Paul is unforgiving. Or he's so committed to the work and he knows the high personal cost that if anybody's going to quit, we can't afford to take them. We'd seen him quit before. But Barnabas, in this particular moment, is more focused on the worker than he is the work. As this plan was. You with me on this one? Have you ever come up short and didn't finish the task? For whatever the reasons were, you didn't do it? And you felt Paul's wrath and his rejection? Nope, you don't get a second chance with me. Or so it seems. And all of a sudden, Barnabas, the encourager, couldn't win the argument with Paul. And then we read in 39, there arose such a sharp disagreement. This is an angry disagreement. We don't know the content. We just know the mood. It is a difficult moment in the history of the church. That they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to his home, Cyprus, But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and we never hear from Barnabas again. This is it. I'm going to now read a statement that I have written because I want to make sure I'm as precise as possible. And I know we're at the end, but bear with me for the sequel. Barnabas is the central pivot point from the birth of the church to its expansive growth. Through his generous giving, insightful encouragement, and resolute dedication of developing people, Barnabas was the senior statesman and international representative of the development of the apostles. His enduring legacy is found in the authorship of the New Testament. He didn't write a thing. But let me describe the sequel. While we never hear from Barnabas again, he lives on in everyone we read. You with me on this one? Let's do it this way. Let's do the math. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is calling for his parchments, his letters, and he's asking for John Mark to come join him because he's been useful in service. In the room at the time with Paul is Luke, who had joined Paul's missionary journey number two in Troas in Acts chapter 16. And we read it, if we're careful, that all of a sudden the writer in Acts starts using the first person plural pronoun, which means the writer is now part of the troop. And Luke inserts himself by saying we and us and our. And we know from chapter 1 of Acts that Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus. 
so that he can explain the sequel to his gospel, Luke. That's two books that are attributed to the man who worked with Paul in his missionary journey. We can take the 13 books of Paul and add those to the two of Luke, and that's 15 books of the 27 in the New Testament. So far, so good? What we can also learn is that Mark had served after he had been rejected by Paul here, later serves Peter in his ministry. And it's argued that John Mark is writing from Peter's perspective when he wrote his gospel, Mark. That's book, what, 16? And if we take the two epistles of Peter, I thought my math's okay in public. I think that's 16 and 17, right? Did we go 17, 18? Help me out. Okay, I've, somebody just corrected my math. Thank you. An encourager, Barnabas' sister right here. So are you with me on this one? Of the 27 books in the New Testament, we can attribute 18 of them being influenced by Barnabas' ministry. I'm fascinated by that. Not only are we fascinated by the influence he had in the writing in the New Testament, I'm also influenced by the example that he lived in the New Testament. And that's where we watch what Barnabas did. He was generous. He was forgiving. He was insightful and humble. So far, so good on this, right? Can you do any of that? Yes. Can you go the distance to be part of the fellowship of the church? And where we often think the encourager was always nice guys and they don't stand up for anything, they never want to fight. No, Barnabas was willing to disagree. You know, one of the greatest evidences the encouragers when they have to do the hard things and they do them. It's not always the fun and enjoyable stuff. It's when you have to make the hard call because you see that moment. We need to get past it. Well, I'm done. All right, but let's do it this way. I pray that God will bless you. And I want to be a part of being blessed as well by the life and the example of Barnabas. The man who, as I've tried to explain, stands at the center, the pivot point of changing the destiny of the people in his charge. And he used the full weight of his life to do so. And I'm not talking about Albert Camus' Mr. Bernard anymore. I'm talking about you. Can you use the full weight of your person to help change the destiny of the people in your influence? You can change the history of people's lives by encouraging them in Jesus Christ. Do so. I encourage you to do so. Be a Barnabas. Father, grateful for this fellowship, the men and women, the brothers and sisters, the saints of Terrell Bible Church. Father, I thank you for giving us such a man who so much resembles Jesus in the life of the people that he lived around and with and near. Father, those moments when all of a sudden the rest of us can do what what Barnabas did. And I pray, Father, that you would raise these men and women up to continue to bless the people in their world, the examples that they need, the good word that they need to hear, maybe even that hard word that's a little tough, but you love them. So, Father, I thank you for Drake and Barb. I pray for the 
safe return. I know the difficulty and the weight that he carries as a brother, as a family member, as a pastor, as a teacher. Father for Barb is his helpmate, continued uh, ministry that extends beyond all boundaries and all reaches. We love him and we love them and we look forward to seeing them back. And Father, for the name of Jesus Christ, be raised and honored and glorified, we pray in it.